Project A Podcast. Welcome to this new episode of the Project A Podcast. My name is Charlotte and I lead the venture development team here at Project A. And I'm very happy to welcome Scott Sinatra today, Chief Revenue Officer at Dixa, the customer engagement platform. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Charlotte. Great to be here. Awesome. So, Scott, there's a very insightful podcast out there called Hunters and Unicorns, in which you elaborate on your journey from the early days of selling software at PDC and Blade Logic, and how you then moved over to leading global sales at, at Glassdoor and Glint. Um, so everyone that's interested in listening to, to that and getting more insights specifically also on your sales playbook um, can hop over to Hunters and Unicorns. But for everybody that's, that has not yet gotten to that episode, can you please um, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I've been uh, kind of in the sales world for quite a long time. I started my tech journey in sales at Parametric Technology, who was the first independent software company to reach a billion dollars in revenue back in the 90s. Uh, this is where we all met John McMahon. Uh, and, uh, and then eventually we all converged onto this company called Blade Logic, or a lot of us from Parametric Technology converged onto this tiny little company out of Boston called Blade Logic. And the story goes that 33 of us from that company came on went on to become CXOs of other companies. So that's what the Hunters and Unicorns podcast is all about. Awesome. And, and, and then what happened afterwards? So tell us a bit about your story moving to lead global sales at, at Glint and Glassdoor. Yeah, so uh, the McMahon uh, connection has been helpful for sure, you know, after we built Blade Logic into a, uh, a public company after three years. We sold it to BMC Software. And uh, when BMC bought Blade Logic, they bought not only a niche technology that would fit into a broader platform, but they also bought a sales organization. They knew that they were getting hunters that could help grow the business. And so um, when, when the acquisition was done, CEO of BMC immediately appointed John McMahon as the head of global sales and operations for BMC. So here you have a 30 year old giant company uh, that's looking to grow and basically hired the PTC or the PTC slash blade logic sales force, you know, to come in and help it grow. So when John was appointed, he uh, sprinkled his leaders around the world. Um, we uh, implemented our playbook uh, to the tune of, you know, growing the business from a 5%, you know, kind of growth story a year to 20% growth story. And um, so it was a dramatic transformation in terms of how to efficiently scale an organization. Um, and so we did that for a little while. And then uh, John eventually left and uh, became an advisor to quite a few companies, one of which was Glassdoor. And Glassdoor was looking for its first kind of real CRO, if you will. And I was tapped to go uh, take that on. So I, uh, I started at Glassdoor. They, they were four years into their journey. Um, and in that business, uh, they were trying to attract eyeballs on site to leave reviews, and then you can monetize from there. So at that point, you know, once you have the flywheel of eyeballs on site and you start to think about monetizing, then you need a sales organization to go do that. So that's what I was tapped to go do. I built uh, uh, that company from zero to 20 million in uh, ARR. Um, in less than two years. And a lot of that had to do with 
understanding the sale, understanding the kind of people we need to bring into the organization, um, and building uh, a highly transactional machine, if you will, um, uh, for go-to-market. So a lot of playbook stuff, a lot of understanding what it was going to take, what kind of people we needed. And then we were hiring 15 salespeople a quarter, uh, had a great boot camp uh, established to get them up to speed fast. And, you know, that business really flew. Uh, and they eventually sold to a company called recruit.com for uh, a billion plus 1.1. 1. 1. Uh, and then, uh, and then I, I jumped into, uh, meeting a guy named Jim Barnett, who was a serial entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, um, who was, uh, uh, on the verge of starting something new called Glint. Uh, he had a couple of engineers. He had his CFO from a previous life. You know, just a, just a handful of people and a, and a minimally viable product to go disrupt the employee engagement space. Uh, so when I met Jim, uh, I was immediately attracted, one, to his experience, his IQ and his EQ, but also this idea that uh, employee engagement was an opportunity to, to be disrupted. And as a leader, I was always wanting to know uh, what was happening with our teams. You know, what were they saying? Uh, to their significant others when they went home at night about their day at work. And there was really no way to capture that kind of information or feedback, um, uh, which was super valuable for us in, in terms of understanding uh, how to build our business, how to fix things that weren't working well. Uh, you know, so it was a, it was a, a blessing, one, uh, to, to have a system like that, but two, to be a part of uh, joining a company that early and really disrupting an industry. So I joined uh, I joined uh, Glint um, as employee number six or seven, I think, and um, to, to, to lead go-to-market and to lead um, all the sales functions. Um, and, you know, started in North America and, and then eventually expanded into Europe and then eventually expanded into Asia as well. Uh, along the way there, we, uh, I was a, an executive founder on the team, uh, on the founding leadership team, and uh, we decided to be acquired by LinkedIn five years into our journey, uh, which was exciting as well. So uh, I spent two years or so contractually obligated to stay at, at, at LinkedIn. Uh, and once that was over, took a little bit of time and then started to uh, actually do some advisory work for uh, for Mads over at Dixa. And that's how Mads and I actually got to know each other. Um, and, you know, through the process of, of repeated conversations about the business and what he was looking for, what he needed, we eventually decided maybe it's probably a good thing for us to try to work together. And, uh, you know, so I started <laughs> in, uh, in March. Awesome. Fantastic. Definitely great to have you on board at Dixa. So, um, so you're now responsible, well, for, for global sales, but specifically at the moment to scale the U.S. market for Dixa European scale up. And, and that is interesting because um, is this your first time doing it basically the other way around from Europe to the U.S.? It is. Yeah. And it's part of the attraction for me, actually. I've kind of done everything else. Uh, so this idea that, you know, business is so global today, you know, that you know, where there are fundamentals, there's opportunity for scale and fundamentals, you know, don't solely exist in a vacuum in the U S. 
So there are, uh, you know, there's great business fundamentals at Dixa that um, is allowing us to actually scale the business globally now. And that's that was attractive to me for sure. Yeah, and for for us as Project A, as a as a European investors with mostly European um, portfolio companies, that's actually something that we see um, or, or hear very early on in the journey. That obviously a lot of founders have, you know, the ambition and the drive and and the great vision um, to internationalize to to the U.S. or to North America at some point in their journey. Um, so maybe um touching on a little bit of like what you just mentioned in terms of you know having the fundamentals in place so really what are the fundamentals for a european scale up to then approach go to market strategy in the us uh i would say that uh, the fundamentals are the same for any market that you want to enter into right um it's just bigger you know it's um you know the us is the largest market in the world for most companies and so uh, the consequences are a little bit greater, but the fundamentals are still, I think, the same. I think, I think fundamentally, you need to know and understand your ICPs, your ideal customer profiles, um, and when you know that, entering into the U.S., um, you need to build a U.S.-focused lead generation function to help you get those early meetings. That top of funnel is really important, just to get. Uh, into a sales sales rhythm, get into conversations with clients, get yourself known, you know, in certain regions around the U.S. And when you have your ICPs, you should actually start to implement some account-based marketing where you're targeting your various buyer personas. You should know this um, with messaging and calls to action. So you should have a multi-pronged approach to attacking the market uh, with your messaging. Um, and it really is all about top of funnel activity. I will say what's unique about the U.S. and what I'm actually learning here at Dixa already is um, U.S. healthcare coverage for employees is very important. Um, so do not forget mm -hmm. about this. Um, in many European countries, you know, U.S. or, or I'm sorry, uh, health healthcare is provided. In the U.S., it's private. So um, it's something that you need to take care of for your employees. You need to understand it. You need to buy it <laughs> and it is expensive. And so know that going in, get it right, uh, because it can have a, it can certainly have an impact on the morale of your employees. Um, uh, and I would really try to hire a credible firm in the U.S. to help you do this. Um, so do your homework, do your mm -hmm. research and find the best coverage for employees. It really does matter. I would also, you know, at some point in time, be ready to provide localized support for your products and services, both in pre-sales and post-sales uh, in the U.S. Um, the locality is important. It's still a people business. We need to be close to our customers uh, and prospects. And when you show that you are supporting the business, not just from Europe, but also in the localities, in some localities in the U.S., you're signaling to the to the market that you're actually ready to 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 be significant in the US. I think that's important and versus just sticking your toe in and, you know, you know, trying things out. Mm -hmm. I would also uh, build a PR um, and uh, be a PR strategy and a media presence um, in, in the US. Um, announcing your presence professionally will be attractive to potential customers. And so, again, this all goes to the multi pronged approach to uh, know your ICPs, hit your buyer personas and get the word out. 
So you could you could technically argue that, you know, like, a, a, let's say a well-funded European scale-up would have the resources to do what you just described. Um, and, you know, you can also argue that, you know, they would have done their homework of really investigating into their ICPs, ideal, ideal customer profiles, getting their messaging right, and, and then getting the people on the ground. But so, so when is that, when is timing right? You know, what do you need to have achieved as like an organization in, in, in the European market to say, all right, now the time has come, we've reached some sort of maturity maybe to really make the leap across the pond? Let me give you an example of how we thought about this at Glint. I think that this could be appropriate. So, uh, you know, we were we were actually selling our product and service around the world in in drips and dabbles, if you will, nothing serious. But we had some customers, you know, in certain locations outside of the U.S. But we were supporting it from the U.S. For example, you know, uh, one of our early customers in the U.K. was Sky, the big broadcasting company. Um, and, you know, that can be indicative, you know, of there's something there. We should really follow up on this and, and see if the market is ready for us or not. And in fact, in that situation, what we did was I had one of our territory reps in the U.S. split time between uh, his territory in Chicago and 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 uh, digging into the U.K. in particular uh, as a potential market for us. And it took less than six months for me to realize, you know, through prospecting efforts and through setting meetings and getting our word out and getting into sales calls and understanding pain and all of those important things that uh, the market is ripe for what we do in the UK, just like it was in, in North America. And so at that point, we actually leaned in. So when you get indicators, you get uh, you get some some market indicators uh, that the pain is real and that the timing is right uh, to solve that pain for customers. Uh, my advice is always to lean in when you have those indicators. And so what we did is we we hired, uh, we, we, we put our first CS person on the ground to support not only Sky, but also the rest of those new customers that we were going to get. I eventually moved that person that was splitting time between the U.S. and, uh, and the U.K. Um, over to the U.K., uh, to work there full time. I eventually moved over there. Uh, and so, uh, uh, because we knew that the market in Europe could be huge for us. And we knew that by going at the time that we did, we'd be ahead of our, we'd be ahead of our competition. And that was a big part of it as well. So, you know, I started with basically 10 or so people right away in the UK to go for it. You know, and in less than a year, we did 10 million in ARR and, you know, we had 50 plus customers, you know, really quickly and it worked great, you know. Uh, and then you know, ultimately we, we rinsed and repeated that into Asia as well. But uh, but you have to have these kind of early indicators that give you the confidence uh, that this isn't just a science project, but the market's actually really ready for you and you can support it. In the UK, it wasn't uh, all that difficult for us because business in, in the UK is quite similar to business in the US. Um, there's no real constraints, if you will, uh, in terms of our product and service working there, in terms of the way um, business is done in that part of the world, et cetera. So, uh, and it was obviously a lot of English speaking, which was helpful for us. So I'm sure there was some, some um... Yeah, like you had to make a decision basically on 
do you take one of your people, you know, 50% out of their local role, send them to a market where they might not have a network, they might not be culturally familiar with how to sell to customers over there versus actually hiring somebody on the ground in the UK. So how do you make that trade-off decision? Well, I, I will say at Glint, it was a little bit easier for me because the person that I actually had working part-time in the UK was actually born and raised in the UK. So <laughs> you know, we right. were a little bit fortunate there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, I, I definitely prefer to stay within versus hiring on from the outside, at least in the early days, in the, in the, in the early days of expansion, because, um, you know, the people that have been with us for a while, they, they know us, they know how we operate. They know what is inbounds and what is out of bounds in terms of our product and service capabilities, our culture, all of those things. So uh, I really like to leverage existing employees for expansion versus trying to bring somebody in from the outside and have them adapt to our way of doing things, our culture, learn the products and services. It way, makes way more sense for me to take an existing you know, employee and, and, and let them go for it. Mm-hmm. Mm, so let's say, you know, as, as, as founders or a management team, then um, let's say you, you've done the first step, you've gotten those indicators, as you mentioned, um, you're sending somebody over from your existing team to just really dive into opportunities over there and and ideally prove the hypothesis or or the question at hand. Um, how do you then go about hiring your first um, sales leader on the ground? Or the question is more, who is your first hire on the ground? Is it an experienced sales leader that will um, basically orchestrate all go-to-market activities? Or is it like a sales executive and, and like an, an operator basically yeah it's a it's a little bit of a tricky question actually um because you need a sales leader um that is willing to do a lot of ic work right um because ultimately what you want is somebody that can scale and grow from basically nothing to owning and operating a team and you need experience mm -hmm. on kind of both fronts and you need a willingness mm -hmm. to kind of do all of the gritty, hard, dirty, IC work it takes to build a new market. Right. I, I think the question, it, let me kind of uh, play it back just to make sure I understand the question, but you're, you're talking about how does a European company essentially, you know, think about hiring a successful U S sales leader. Is that what you're thinking about? Yeah. Cause I mean, that's true. I think it's interesting for, for our founders to hear who's your first hire after you've sent your, like a local person over, but then, you know, essentially, or, or eventually you want to hire, uh, uh, an experienced sales leader, um, just like you were hired back in the day. Yeah. Right. So, so how do, how do, how do European scale-ups find people like Scott? <laughs> Okay, well, let's go back to the fundamentals again, because I think it's important for uh, for everyone to realize what folks like I look for in terms of fundamentals of the business, mm -hmm. right? So first, um, you will be attractive to people like me uh, if the TAM is huge, if the sales theater is enormous. You know, for example, customer experience as a as an industry that we're in at Dixa is enormous. You know, it's a hundred billion plus marketplace in totality. Mm -hmm. So in the situation like that, you don't need to win the whole market to be a really valuable company. You can have your slice of it and build a great company out of 
a very focused effort to attacking part of that TAM. Uh, so I think that's really important is to, uh, you know, uh, to be attractive, you need to be operating in a, in a really big space, uh, right, in a big TAM. I always look for uh, the board and who's on the board, actually. Um, I think it's really important that board members are former operators that can add value, especially to early stage companies to help see around corners. You know, CEO founders of, of many businesses, as your audience will clearly know, uh, are the visionaries. They may have not been a CEO before. They need some of that operator experience around them that boards can provide. And I, I look at that as indicative of uh, a potential for a business. Um, product market fit is clear, you know, the product, it, you know, there are great ideas that are missing that, that are not well timed that don't do well. <laughs> so product market fit and timing, I think is clear. Uh, happy customers. So uh, people like me want to know that customers are, even if it's an early stage company, that's maybe even in beta, that at least early customers are seeing the power of the potential of the platform or the product or service that's being offered. Um, and with some innovation and some scale, you know, this could be something someday, uh, which I think is really attractive, uh, that, that growth opportunity, if you will. And um, I think that the product or service, for me anyway, should be a really hard engineering problem to solve. Uh, you know, there should be a very high barrier to entry. It's, it's a lot easier. I think your founders, your, your CEOs, your co-founders in your portfolio would, would probably agree with me that it's a lot easier today to start a company than it was many years ago, um, right? The technology, the capabilities uh, to get software off the ground is, is, is not as hard as it used to be, but the engineering problems still exist. And so if there's, if there's a high barrier to entry into the market that you're in, uh, from somebody like me, that's indicative of a real opportunity. Uh, I'll give you an example. So um, before I joined Jim Barnett over at Glint, uh, I asked him a hard question. I said, "Hey, I'd like to interview the. I'd like to interview four CEOs of some of your early beta customers." And I was very specific mm -hmm. about the number four, and thinking that he would only be able to give me two or one, and it was probably going to be a great friend of his. Uh, but he did. He gave me four early beta customer. You know. CEOs to contact. And I talked to them all and I asked them a lot of the same questions about what they're seeing in the product or service, what per in particular about that product or service was helping their business that they didn't have access to before. And so these are all for me, leading indicators of how to build a sales process around the value and the differentiation of the product or service. This is how I'm, my mind is working in terms of how I could build a sales organization around, you know, this differentiation. You know, to, to get back to the question, um, these are the things that help you become attractive to somebody like myself. In terms of hiring somebody like me, I mean, the US VCs, which you will, I'm sure, be networked with anyway, um, they're all networked mm -hmm. with CROs, just like you guys are, right? I mean, but in the mm -hmm. US, that network is pretty strong. And in fact, you know, I have relationships with many of the top firms. Uh, and their talent organizations and the partners themselves, right? Just having been in the game for so long. Um, and so networking with U.S. investors will really help kind of tap into that broader um, kind of talent pool, if you will. There are a select uh, number of executive recruiters who I would highly recommend. 
uh, in terms of um, CRO slash VP slash sales hiring in the US uh, and even globally. Uh, in particular, there's a guy named Brad Luton in the UK who's absolutely excellent. He's, I've used him now in a couple of companies and I guess the secret's out now, but you know, Brad is, he's outstanding. Um, awesome. And, That's really good yeah, to note down. A great, great partner. Um, when hiring a sale, a, a successful US based sales leader, I think location is really important. Time zone constraints are real, uh, especially if HQ is mm -hmm. in Europe. Uh, I've experienced that myself at Dixa, having started my <laughs> right. early life at Dixa out of, uh, out of California, that time zone uh, thing is real and a challenge. Um, and, you know, I, I'd be ready to offer an attractive relocation package for the right person to move to the UK to be closer to headquarters, um, uh, to the UK or anywhere in Europe, I should say, um, you know, especially if you're looking for uh, somebody that will assume a global role. Let's get back to the core of the question, though, because for me, what was attractive about Glint as an example is that um, I was so early and I love being early. OK, the risk reward for me is is there and I get to I get to build it you know I get to start from nothing um, I really enjoyed going out and being on sales calls and being in front of customers and trying the messaging a lot of a B testing on certain ways that we could go to market uh, eventually did go to market a lot of uh, just experimentation to the point where you can start to see some repeatability in a potential sales process that then can be taught to potential salespeople that you would hire and bring in uh, uh, with the ultimate eye on scaling the business, right? So those early, that early year or two is informative in terms of, you know, what the future could look like if you can try to figure out how to build a repeatable sales process. And for me, the challenge of doing that um, is part of the draw, you know, it, 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 it's kind of similar for me at Dixa, you know, we've got a few salespeople that are great and have been at Dixa for, for some time, but there's an opportunity at Dixa uh, to potentially, um, up level and potentially even reinvent the current sales process to be more efficient, uh, to, uh, to help our people ramp a little faster, um, and to help us scale for sure. Um, but I can't know that unless I'm deep into the grind, if you will, on sales mm -hmm. calls with salespeople, with our sales leaders learning, you know, I think it's very important that all of us stay curious and have a learning and a growth mindset. Anyway, it's super important, you know, in early stage companies, there's no question about it. <laughs> and when we first met um, about like, I don't know, like four to six weeks ago, when you first started at Dixa, um, and I asked you, like, why do you join Dixa? And you said, Charlotte, I'm an operator. And then that for me, that really stuck with me of like what that says about your approach. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I'm not a spreadsheet jockey. <laughs> uh, I, I, I need to be in the grind and I love it. <laughs> um, cool. So maybe like the other way around. So let's say um, you, you know, as a, as a management team, have a couple of people sort of in the process that you're considering to hire, what should you look for in terms of skills and, and attitude? Yeah, good question. So uh, I think um, of clearly the, the objective here is to find somebody that can close some early deals and build some repeatability and help the business learn. Yeah. So um, you need somebody that can close deals. <laughs> okay. I mean, that in and of itself, I think that's really important. 
I think that startup and early stage sales excellence and um, experience is a must. Uh, startup life, scale up life is way different than being in a larger company. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. You don't have the resources. You don't have the brand recognition necessarily that you can hide behind. You're exposed. Yeah. So um, I think that bringing somebody in that has experience in what it's like to work in a smaller startup or scale up environment is a must, a must have period. End of discussion there. And I also would look for people that have led teams in the past. You, you want to find somebody that's willing to kind of take on the early grind with the eye towards um, help giving them the opportunity to build a team uh, and to, you know, build the process, own the process and scale it. I think that's, uh, that's what can be attractive for a lot of people. As far as particular traits that you're looking for, I always say brains and drive, two key attributes, I would say. Um, raw intelligence, both IQ and EQ are really important, as well as grit and determination. They're a must. Uh, and you can see that in the resume and their experience and the way you interview them for sure. You need to find somebody that, that has self-confidence, is self-reliant, uh, has a great attitude and is resilient because startup life is, uh, can be challenging for sure. <laughs> yeah. But it also makes it particularly interesting, right? I would also look though, I would also look at the background of where they came from. You know, I, I, I talk about John McMahon a lot. A lot of us, you know, from the blade logic team and the early PTC teams and all that talk a lot about John McMahon. And the reason we do that is because we've had the training and education from, you know, one of the top CRO leaders in the world. And, um, you know, so it's certainly a bonus when you find somebody that is part of a family tree like that, that has had an education mm -hmm. that has been through the grind, you know, that has learned from the best. And I think that's, uh, that's something you should absolutely look for. Really nice. I think that gave us a really good overview in terms of like what both sides are, are looking for um, um, when, when making that, that jump. So maybe when we go back a little bit to, um, to the go-to-market approach, so let's say you've got your first salespeople on the ground. What are some sort of additional key hires in the commercial department that you want to make um, specifically maybe locally as well um, versus centrally? If the company already has some subject matter expertise, that's great. Um, but you know, you're going to be hiring salespeople that probably don't know anything about your industry, your product, your service, et cetera. So you need subject matter experts that can, you know, come along on sales calls and help with some credibility. So if you don't have that, go get it and, and localize it as much as you possibly can. You know, at Dexo, we're fortunate because we have, we have people that have been, you know, CX leaders. Uh, and contact center agents themselves that understand that world and understand, you know, what it's like, what the, the, the real pain associated with, you know, the kind of before dicks a picture, if you will. Um, so if you have subject matter expertise, great. If not, get it uh, so it can be leveraged. Um, you're going to need to generate interest in leads. SDRs, I think, are going to be really important. It's kind of a low-cost opportunity for you to uh, start to get the word out and start to establish uh, some top-of-funnel activity. And I think a marketing operations person or a lead gen administrator would also be really helpful. You know, salespeople are going to need to generate their own funnels, but 
you know, let's support them as businesses with uh, other pillars of a lead gen function. Um, and you can do that at fairly low cost um, that can pay off really big. Uh, but, you know, higher SDRs for sure for outbound uh, activity and to qualify inbound activity as well. And once you're ready to scale your sales org, you know, once you have product market fit and it's solidified, uh, I would highly recommend hiring a sales readiness and enablement person or head. Um, I think uh, that has been a, a key to me for many, many years. Uh, you can't do it yourself. And to have a professional training program in-house uh, helps with the ramp time of your new employees, not just salespeople, by the way, but new employees in general, uh, get into the business. Um, so for example, at Dixa, um, you know, my first two hires really outside of, you know, just scaling the sales organization uh, is a head of sales enablement who I've hired and readiness and also head of sales operations and revenue operations. Um, so sales readiness and revenue operations for me are key. Uh, at Dixo, we have an opportunity, um, you know, to build some predictability into our business and to build predictability into the business, we have to have processes in place in order to measure and monitor everything associated with our sales process and our go-to-market function in general. This is where sales ops can really help. Um, and uh, that's something that I need right now. So if any founders out there actually know any, anybody in RevOps, uh, you know, feel, feel free to send them my way. We're looking uh, actively right now. <laughs> All right. Where, where can they reach you? SCS at Dixa.com. <laughs> <laughs> you quickly turned this podcast around. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm a sales guy. <laughs> what can I say? Right. <laughs> cool. And and so I think um, maybe like a sort of, you know, um, as a last question um, to round this up. So global global commercial organizations or, or at the very least like sales organi organizations, how do you ensure alignment and knowledge sharing, especially, you know, with the time difference, for example, that you mentioned before? That's an awesome question, actually. We've just confronted it at Dixa. And so I give you a real world example. So, okay. So I hire my head of sales up, uh, I'm sorry, uh, sales readiness and, and enablement. Okay. And, um, you know, one of the first things uh, we work on together uh, at his suggestion is, look, we've got uh, you know, we've got new salespeople that are uh, joining sales calls from some of our more experienced salespeople. And in some cases, we have six or seven people from Dixa joining sales calls to learn. Okay, so that's not a great situation for the customer. And it's not a great, really a great learning environment for the salespeople themselves. And of course, time zone differences are a challenge. So what we've done at Dixa actually is, uh, we, you know, we're actually buying a tool that helps us with collaboration and knowledge sharing. Uh, and this particular tool is called Gong, uh, which is uh, it's, it's basically tabbed as conversational AI, but allows us to actually watch game film. So uh, conversations with clients are recorded and can be leveraged uh, as a learning opportunity for how well our messaging is going, 
uh, what went well on that sales call, what could have improved on that sales call. Um, and uh, it allows, you know, for uh, that kind of a learning opportunity across time zones uh, without, you know, killing people, essentially. Right. So I think that's uh, uh, I would strongly recommend it something uh, some some something that gives you that collaboration opportunity as a video or uh, an audio recording of what's happening on your sales calls. Okay. Awesome. Scott, thank you so much for sharing your experience, your expertise, all of your insights. That was incredibly insightful. <laughs> and I'm sure it will be for, for a lot of European founders out there. So um, you're just, you just started at Dixa. So I think it's going to be really interesting to watch your journey over the next couple of months. It would be great to reflect sort of on this, on this conversation at the end of the year and very much looking forward to what you and the team are able to achieve. Well, Charlotte, I'd be happy to do that. And thanks for the opportunity. And for all the founders and co-founders out there, if you ever want to talk shop, you know, feel free to, uh, to ping me at SCS at Dixa and happy to share. Awesome. Thank you so much, Scott. Speak soon. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating. Thanks, guys.